Welcome to Real Talk for Real Teachers by Conscious Discipline. I'm Latoria Marcellus, and I'm a mom and an educator who practices conscious discipline. And I'm Amy Spidell, and I've been a conscious discipline instructor for well over 20 years. Yikes, that's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And together, we're here to discuss trends and events in education and how conscious discipline impacts every aspect of what we do. For those of you who aren't quite sure about what conscious discipline really is, conscious discipline is an adult-first, transformational, trauma-responsive approach to self-regulation, and it integrates social-emotional learning, equitable school culture, theory and application, research, and brain-based discipline practices. That's a mouthful. Yeah, that is a mouthful. And, you know, I think that when we sometimes break that down, it can go lots of different directions. But One of the things that certainly uh, jumps out when we think about what this really has the capacity to do, especially in our world right now today, is that it truly can give us the guidelines for moving from being coercive in the way that we want things to happen and using connection instead, authentic connection, real relationship. And I do think that although that sounds like who wouldn't want that, uh, when it comes right down to it, sometimes it's hard to give up trying to make people do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it it takes me back to my teaching days. You know, I think about the the things that I would do in the classroom, how I would tell the kids, you know, if you really want to go out to recess, you guys need to really get into this line and be quiet so we can make it down the hallway or you're going to miss the whole thing. And, you know, trying to barter and convince them to do something, it, It would have been so much easier to focus more, you know, even those first six weeks of school on building the relationship to get more of that compliance instead of me trying to spend that first six weeks finding out, well, what is it that they like so I can take it away when they don't do what I want them to do? Right. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, I've been asking uh, some teachers if they've ever heard that comment, uh, never smile till Christmas. And Ah, it it does seem like the younger teachers really, they haven't quite heard that, which is like, yay for us, we're making an improvement. Um, But that, that sense of if you build connection, somehow it means that respect goes out the window when really it is that authentic connection that allows us to have authentic respect instead of just being afraid of those who are in charge. Right. I I bet if most people would think back to who their favorite teachers were, it wasn't the person who was dangling things in front of their faces, threatening to take it away. It was probably the person that sat next to them at recess, you know, ate lunch with them. Those are the folks that we remember. And those are the folks that, you know, children will do anything for. You ask them to line up and everyone goes, well, why do they do it for you and not for me? It's all because of that relationship. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, it takes time to build that. But man, once it's built, it can last through some pretty big storms. That's right. So today we get to bring to you our next guest, Rachel Frazier. She's a conscious discipline practitioner, but she's a little bit different than all the rest. She's a dance specialist who gets to spend a little bit of time with a whole bunch of children at a Magnus school in North Carolina. We'll be discussing how she's able to structure her classroom and build connection with children that she doesn't get to see all that much. We'll also get an opportunity to take a glimpse into her own personal journey through a big loss and how conscious discipline and her students helped her move through that. 
So everybody, let's welcome Rachel. Welcome, Rachel. Nice to have you here. It's good to be with you guys. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about what you do every day? So I am a dance specialist, and that means that I am certified to teach dance kindergarten through 12th grade in my state, which is North Carolina. I personally work at a magnet elementary school, and Amy, you've actually come out and trained with us some. That's been fun. But I teach all of the children in the school kindergarten through fifth grade in some capacity throughout the year. We have two different schedules that I teach. One is our special schedule, which is when the entire homeroom comes to us, similar to what most of us think of art, music, PE when we were growing up. And then we also have an elective schedule. Because we're a magnet school, our students get to choose two electives each quarter that they take four days a week. And that's where I end up seeing the kids. The whole school is my school family, but we really become a school family in those quarterly electives. With what you're doing um, with so many different children and not having them for the whole day, how is it possible for you to create all of these individual school families with having so many children in one day? So on a typical day of the week, I have six classes and five of those will be those elective classes that I see weekly. I see them all throughout the week for a quarter And then one class will be a special that I see intermittently throughout the year. And I am very deliberate during the first week of the quarter, we spend that time establishing our school family. So we do all the things that a classroom teacher does during the first six weeks of school. We just kind of condense it down to that first week. We're playing getting to know you games. We're coming up with a class family name and they create that. And it's really fun to see what they do. We come up with a class family chant or cheer that we do as part of our Brain Smart Start every day. And we really just spend time building connections during that first week. And I have people ask me all the time because those classes I only see for eight weeks, four days a week. And they go, is it really a good choice to spend a whole week on that? You're losing a week of instruction. And my answer is the following seven weeks go so much more smoothly because we've invested the time in forming that connection and that mm-hmm. sense of safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's hard to know that that is helpful until you've actually done it right. I know uh, Ted Miller, who you might also know, has said in teaching math that if I don't do the Brain Smart Start, they're all on tricycles. And if I do the Brain Smart Start, the 10 speeds show up. So it it is about speeding along those extra seven weeks to get the most out of them. And have you noticed that the kids, uh, if you ever, you know, like leave one off or whatever, you know, sometimes we hear how uh, when you're only doing it uh, for one period of once a week, uh, that they don't seem to notice the regularity of that or the routine. What do you, what have you experienced in that? But I very strongly feel that all of my students, my electives need to have meaningful jobs. And where that comes into play the most is the beginning and end of class. So they're actually the ones that are leading the components of our Brain Smart Start. They're the ones watching for and recording kindness. They're the ones wishing each other well. They truly are the ones that are running my classroom. So if there's ever a point where I go, guys, I'm so sorry, we're just really short on time and we're going to have to skip this component, they're not having it. They're like, no, we need to do this part. So we end up doing all the parts regardless. And it's really, 
it's really a lovely thing. And what I've noticed is when moments of chaos happen. So, you know, if we're in class and, and we dance barefoot in my room, so if we're in class and the fire alarm goes off and we're barefoot outside on a hot day, uh, they're the ones that are breathing and wishing other classes well that are having a hard time. When we get back in the room, they'll say, can we do a brain smart start real quick to get it back together? Mm -hmm. I mean, they really have taken this on and made it their own. And that to me is the loveliest part of this. Yes, for sure. Have you seen, um, what is the transition like for kids when they're going from a classroom that may not be um, a conscious discipline classroom to your room? Um, The beauty of being a specialist is, like I said, I see all the kids in the school. And so they're getting it in some capacity. And what we've seen Mm -hmm. is they go into their homerooms and those teachers might not have the skill set to be practicing conscious discipline at this time. Mm -hmm. And they kind of coach each other through things as they happen. So I'm thinking about a second grade student that I had this last year that we intentionally put her in my elective three out of four quarters because she was really working on self-regulation and working through those five steps when she would get upset. And what we noticed was when she would go back to her classroom, her teacher wasn't practicing. She was still working through those steps. And then we saw her start coaching other children working through those steps. So it really does still have a ripple effect. Um, We know that it's not realistic to think that every teacher in every building is going to be practicing to fidelity, but small steps can have a big impact. Well, that's really cool. It's like you have little agents of change that you send out into the world. Exactly. Ooh, sneak them in. You know, I'm so curious about this because we talk so much about kids being exposed to more than just academics. How do you see their ability to thrive in an environment other than what we would traditionally see as academic um, in terms of their performance then academically? Do you see any crossover there? We spend a lot of time working through the same skills that you work through in an academic classroom. So we spend a lot of time problem solving. When issues come up, they're the ones that are choreographing. So often people think that I'm in there teaching a class like you would see at a dance studio. And the reality is the purpose of our program is that creativity piece. So my students, by the end of fifth grade, they're creating their own pieces that they're performing. And so we work through that together and they're learning those skills and then taking them over to the classroom. Also in electives, but also in specials, especially, I try to make sure that we integrate as much academic content as we can. So we're reading together and determining the theme of that book and dancing those themes. We're looking at the feelings that a character might have. There's a first grade unit that I do around the book, When Sophie Gets Angry, Really, Really Angry by Molly Bang. I love that book. And we spent a lot of time talking about how running outside is Sophie having a plan for her safe place. And so we kind of break that down and then we create dances that demonstrate how she works through her feelings. So really, truly, we try to integrate as much as we can in our building. And also that I think one of the things that you have um, that we wish more teachers were able to really accomplish is the continuity, uh, the continuation of a relationship. Uh, What do you see as the kind of the building of those skills over the course of your experience in their lives? You uh, do. I'm assuming that you have kids that you really have been in their lives for years. Quite a few yeah. years. Over the, if they're with us their whole elementary career, then I see them for six years. And it's 
really cool to see them come in as kindergartners and grow into fifth graders, both just in their life knowledge, their dance knowledge, but especially when it comes to their social emotional learning. And what we've learned is that there are kids who are going to go into that homeroom and really connect with that homeroom teacher each year. They've just got a skill set that's going to allow them to do that. Mm -hmm. But there are kids that are a little bit more relationship resistant when it comes to that homeroom teacher. And so we actually at our school have designed a mentor program where based on our data from our uh, behavior information and then also just our anecdotal data, we pair kids intentionally with teachers within the building and not just teachers, um, custodians, our custodians, our mentors, our cafeteria workers connect with our kids. And so once you're paired with that student each year, uh, somebody checks back in with that student to go, how's it going? Do you want to stay with Ms. Frazier? Do you feel like you need to switch to someone else? But it's really cool because, you know, the, the building knows that they're years. And so I can be downstairs and one of my kids upstairs can be having a hard time. And it's funny, like I'll be passing kids and teachers. They're like, you know, so-and-so's having a hard time. You might want to go check in with them type of thing. Um, But it's really cool to see them grow and develop those skills over time. Yeah. Yeah. What did this look like for you during COVID? (laughs) You talked about your children coming into your room. You have your shoes off, your, you know, (laughs) creating your dances, and then all of a sudden, boom, everybody's at home. What did that look like for you? So when we first shut down for COVID for the rest of that school year, uh, the way that things were handled within our district was nothing was graded and nothing was mandatory. So kids just had a choice of if they logged in or not. And the way we handled that was we had office hours and they were intended to provide academic support my office hours ended up being opportunities for us to connect with each other. So whoever Mm -hmm. logged in, we'd have a dance party. We'd do some connection activity. It was interesting, like all of those touch games that we tend to play, we would still do it through the camera and just kind of have our hands lifted up to the camera, Uh, but it still worked. We were still able to build that connection. The following year when we came back, we came back completely virtually and all of a sudden everybody was required to be logging in for class. And so then it was how do we teach dance through a camera? And it was a lot of, I'm not going to lie, it was a lot of me sitting in the chair talking to the camera and then backing up and showing them and dancing with them and then pulling back forward. Um, We used some software that allowed them to record their work. So it actually kind of worked really well as far as grading because they were able to submit videos of their work and get feedback and they learned to give each other feedback but we still spent a lot of time working on that connection piece. And we still started with a brain smart start every class period. It's really interesting to hear about how you were able to take your classroom, build these relationships. And then during COVID, those relationships went into the home. So you had an opportunity to still be a home base for all of these children using their skills um, to help make it through a difficult time. Now, I know that you've had an opportunity to use conscious discipline to help you through a difficult time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I had been practicing conscious discipline for about five years and really kind of starting to feel like I kind of had my feet up under me with all of this when my feet were knocked out from under me and my husband 
was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer. So that was November of that particular school year. It was actually the week before Thanksgiving that we spent at the hospital. And I struggled with acceptance at that point. I, I remember the doctor coming in after they had done the test to determine that this was cancer. And it was the first time they said that word. But I remember him coming in and saying, your husband has cancer. And my response was, no, that's not supposed to be him. That's supposed to be me. My family's the one with the history. So you've got this wrong. <laughs> and I, he just kind of looked at me dumbstruck. But I really did struggle with accepting that this is what it is. And this is what my life is now. Because that truly changes your life when you get that diagnosis. Now, John was an amazing man. And he did everything he could for two and a half years. Uh, and I found a text the other day because I, I saved a bunch of his texts toward the end. And I found a text the other day that said, it was, it was toward the end, and he said, I did everything I did so that we could have time together. And that connection was key. Mm -hmm. Um, while he was doing all this treatment, I would miss school every other week, one day a week, every other week, to take him to chemo because his chemo treatment was a full day process. And so there were things that happened there in the chemo clinic that showed me the power of the work that we do. He and I kind of had our own little I love you ritual that just organically evolved. Um, we both loved a song that said I love you more today than yesterday but not as much as tomorrow. And so when things would get tough for him, he would look at me and say, I love you more today than yesterday. And I would squeeze his hand and say, but not as much as tomorrow. And his chemo nurse started to know this ritual. So she'd say, I think it's time for the ritual. Um, we also worked a lot on breathing, like just the act of calming everything down and taking that breath did so much for both of us at the time. Um, John hated having the needle put into his port when he would do chemo. And it wasn't the needle itself. It was the numbing spray that they put on beforehand. And so we would always, like, he would focus on me. And we would take a deep breath together. And then we'd do our ritual. And he'd be like, all right, I've got this. And I remember one day a guy sitting across the way from us looked up and he goes, um, I, I think I want that too. Can you come do that with me too? And John's like, I'm sorry, you got to get your own. <laughs> yeah, and just those basic oh. skills and composure really helped us through those times. Mm. The other piece yeah. that was happening, though, was while I was with him, I wasn't at school. So that mm -hmm. time that I had spent with my kids and we had worked so hard to build that family um, really became crucial at that point because being a school family changed the way they thought about the time that I was gone. You know, you know, kids, when a sub comes in, you know, they just kind of go bonkers and they want to test the boundaries as much as possible. And so because mm -hmm. I'd set the groundwork that I'm their safekeeper and it's my job to keep mm -hmm. them safe and it's their job to help keep it safe, we could talk about substitutes and say, when I'm not here, the sub might not know how to dance but the sub is here to keep you safe and it's your job to help keep the sub safe. And then the beauty of my kids having jobs was my sub plans would literally say, the brain dance leader will lead the brain dance. The breathing helper will choose breathing. Mm -hmm. So it would oh, literally wow. spell out that all the kids, they led the beginning and end of class 
and the sub just needed to tell them the meat of that middle content piece and they could run with it. So it was really beautiful. My subs would leave notes that would say, hey, we'll sub anytime. Your kids are running class for us. But I also knew they were wishing us well the whole time that we were away from them and they were happy to see me the next day. Yeah, yeah. It, it brings up an interesting point that you said they led the beginning and the end of each day. You know, those bookends for I can handle a lot of crazy in the middle if I know I can count on how it starts and how it ends. And we often talk about that even in families, mm-hmm. right? Of how do you start and how do you end? Or, or a school year, how do you start and how do you end? So you had already planted that in so that when the middle wasn't the same, they still had these bookends to hold on to. That's pretty right. amazing. What do you think your bookends were? Hmm, that's an interesting question, Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my home life was chaos at that point um, and was pretty unpredictable. Uh, it depended on how John was reacting to treatment that week, what he wanted to eat. Like that, I would call every day, what sounds tempting to you as I was driving home. Mm-hmm. So I felt like that was mm-hmm. so unpredictable. Um, that really the drive to work was the bookend that started my day and set the pattern. I very much am a podcast person, so I was excited to get asked to do this because I love listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I would listen to a podcast on the way to work. I would, uh, When I'd get to work, I'd park and just take a moment in my car to take some breaths and gear up for the day. Um, and then mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it was that going to bed process. So, and that was a predictable pattern. I do it the same way every day. And so that was really the bookend at the end of the day. And then, you know, some check-ins throughout the day. I did better if I knew how he was doing. So John knew to text me a couple times a day and just let me know what he was up to. And also my kids would check in with me throughout the day. So um, because I was working on accepting my feelings and recognizing them the kids were learning to do that too and they like i can think of one in particular that was a first grader and she would crawl into my lap when i'd be sitting on the floor and she'd go you feel sad and i'd go i do feel sad mm-hmm. and she'd go you're worried about mr fraser and i'd go i am worried about mr fraser and she would look at me and she'd go breathe with me and i just was amazed mm-hmm. all those things we were offering to them they were giving back to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And Rachel, sometimes I think people think that when you're going through something big like that, it's not really wise to be around children. You know, you might share something with them that's not comfortable or what if you break down in front of them? And yet what a life lesson that as much as you were carrying, you still were able to walk through life and make sense of it. And it was okay that it was hard. And, you know, how many times do we say that about the feeling buddies, you know, like just carry sad around with you. It's okay to be sad and still be here with us. What a, what a, what a living, breathing lesson that became to so many children in your, and then tagging onto that, Amy, once John died was when the real work began because I had been so busy prior to that that I really, you know, I was trying to deal with things, but there was always a distraction. And so once he died, mm-hmm. um, I threw myself back into work. I think I took off a week and then went back to mm-hmm. school. And I 
at that point was very deliberate in being real with my students. So I did break down several times and I let them see that because I grew up in a situation where big feelings were not okay. We were allowed to be happy and we were allowed to be grateful. And that was about the extent of what was allowed. And so I wanted to model for them that people can have big feelings and it's okay. And it got a little awkward for them a couple times. And then they learned, because I would say, all right, I'm going to the safe place. Can you tell? You know, I'm struggling. I'm going to go to the safe place. Well, you wish me well while mm-hmm. I'm over there. But I also was very deliberate. I, I didn't use language that was over their head, but I was very deliberate in saying, like, Mr. Frazier died. I didn't want to say, you know, we have all these things that we say that kind of allude to that, but don't hit it head on. So I didn't want to say he's not with us anymore. He passed away. I was very deliberate to say Mr. Frazier died. And I'm having some big feelings about that. And you're going to see me have those feelings. And when it happens, breathe and wish me well. And, you know, every class, there were one or two kids that could just pick up on it right away. And they would turn to the class and they go, guys, it's time. And they'd all put their hands on their hearts and breathe and wish me well. And that was the way my kids handled it was so much better than the way any adult in my life handled it. And I say that having some pretty amazing adults that helped me. But my kids did more for me in that time and for my healing than, than people typically give kids credit for. So it's, you had this built-in support mm-hmm. system that you had an opportunity to see every day. But at some point, because of COVID, that changed. So yet you find yourself in another transition of having to deal you know, with the, with the difficulties of these emotions that you're feeling and you don't have your breathing right. team with you. Mm-hmm. So what was it like when it's, for me, it seems like it would almost be like another loss when you lose your team, you know, who's supporting you, those mm-hmm. children, and you find yourself sitting at home by yourself in the quiet and in the still of everything. Um, what was that like? It wasn't easy. I'm not going to lie. And the, the added zing to things was that 11 months after John died, my mother died as well. And so she had been diagnosed with a liver disease since I was in high school. She had a transplant when I was in college. She had lived a longer life than we ever expected her to. But it's still, it's, it's your mother and it's a loss. And it was on the heels of the one. So... Um, I talked about that first year after John is the year of firsts, you know, the first birthday without him because my birthday was the following week. Um, The first Thanksgiving without, like it was just the year of first. Mm -hmm. And I hit a point that summer where I just, stuff started going on with mom. And I remember looking at a friend and my sister both, anytime either one of them was around me. And I would say, I just have a feeling that it's going to be about a year after John died. I just have a feeling that I'm going to be dealing with this again. And so when she did die, it was like the one grief cycle hadn't even really been worked through. And then here I was plunged into another one. And I didn't know how to grieve her and him at the same time. And so for that year, and it's the year before COVID, I just threw myself into work and travel. I was at school when school was happening. And then once the summer hit, I booked as much work as I could for conscious discipline. Uh, I worked CD1 in Columbia. I went and did some work with Amy. I 
book some one day and two day trainings. And I really was just kind of hiding from everything at that point. And then when we shut down the following spring for COVID, it was, I was by myself in my home talking to kids through a screen. And then at the end of the day, you turn off the computer and you just had the night all to yourself. And I was okay ish until the week of spring break. You know, usually you look forward to spring break, but it just was a whole lot of me by myself. And that was the point where I was like, okay, it's time to call a therapist. So my solution to all of that was, yes, I learned to sit with it and feel it and name it and own it. But I also got some professional help to help me work through all of that. And that is also what we teach our kids to do, right? When we say, um, uh, you know, we often talk about how when kids are having a challenge and they get to the end of not having a tool set to go any mm -hmm. farther, instead of that statement of I'm telling on you, it's the I'll, I'll get some help for us. And so just, wow, you know, when you, I don't know that we have the ability to share with kids how to walk through something when there hasn't been some experience with the challenge of that walk, it, you know, just, you know, I just think we can certainly read about stuff. In fact, I know a friend of mine who really got hit pretty hard and his wife said to him, well, now maybe there'll be a lot more empathy in these things. And he looked at her and he said, I just want to read about it. I don't want to walk mm -hmm. through it. Um, because who would? Mm -hmm. And yet what you have now to bring, do you feel like there's any part of this that is redeemed? In, and I don't exactly know how to state this, but like in John's life or in your mom's life that says, I'm living this walk in a in a in a way that that speaks about who they were in my life. What like is there any any resonance to that thought process or what? Yeah, I am a different person because of John. Mm. He came into my life at a time when I didn't see much in myself, and he did. Mm. So we were married nine years. We knew each other just shy, days shy of 10. And I'm so thankful for those nine years. Um, and when he died, there was this thought of what happens now, was that it? Um, and now four years later, I can say, no, that's not it. <laughs> and um, I am seeing somebody now, and I, I regularly say, I think the two of them would have gotten along really well. Um, my mom, my mom had a hard childhood. You know, we talk about um, ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences. My mom had a pretty high ACE score based on what I know. And then I look at mine, and I have an ACE score of a one, and I just think, look at the work that she did to make sure that my sister and I had a different experience than she did. Mm -hmm. And so I know that she would be proud that I'm able to offer that to the thousands of children that I've taught over the last 23 years, um, because it's actually kind of a continuation of the work that she started. As you think about the effects that 
your journey has had on the children that have come through your life, what do you think will be their takeaway or their lasting impression from being able to see how Mrs. Frazier has handled something um, that was as difficult as what you've been through? My hope is even now as their children, but as they grow older and become young adults and have their own families eventually, my hope is that they're not afraid of their feelings, that they're able to see them for what they are and accept them and share them with others, especially that group that was with me for those couple of years, but also any kids that are part of my school family that they leave a little bit more empathetic than they came. Mm. And what a gift you give to our entire world when you build that into all the children who walk through your door and experience that empathy that comes from you and embeds itself in them. Beautiful, beautiful. So if you were given the opportunity just to talk to new teachers, teachers who have been in the trenches for, you know, 30 years, what advice would you give them so that they would be able to start to open up a little bit themselves to share with children without trying to protect them from feelings, Mm -hmm. but actually being able to use their lives to help teach them about this is what we do. How do you help um, other teachers gain that skill that you have? So one of the things that we hear all the time and that we say all the time is that conscious discipline is an adult first model. And really, Mm -hmm. truly, before I can offer it to any children around me, I have to strengthen it within myself. And so the first step for me and the first thing that I would advise anybody else on is really doing the work within yourself to be a little bit more comfortable with the discomfort of having those feelings and letting other people see them. I mean, I'm the type of person that I was raised that as soon as you start to tear up, you flee the room and go hide somewhere and have that good cry Mm -hmm. and then you dry it up and come back with a smile on your face. (laughs) And so like my big thing for a while was I was working on when tears happened, staying in the space that I was in and allowing them to happen. Mm -hmm. And it was funny to see the people around me who would get so uncomfortable because they were raised the same way I was. So, you know, you'd hear other adults go, it's okay, it's okay, or don't cry, or let me get you a tissue. And, and I would say, yeah. I'm really working on allowing myself to cry when the feeling bubbles up. And so that had to take place first for me to then be able to model for kids what that looks like as well, because I had to be comfortable with that discomfort. So I would say anybody out there that's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to start modeling big feelings for kids and it's going to be all good. Uh, Just like anything else, it's never quite as easy as we think it's going to be. But really, it's Mm -hmm. building that within yourself first, being able to have the big feelings, recognize them and then figure out what to do with them. Because sometimes you're like, I'm just going to wallow for a while. And sometimes you're like, you know what, right now I'm going to put this aside and I'll come back to it later. But I always had to make sure I came back to it later. Yeah, I love the um, the idea of, you know, it could be like a T-shirt or something. For personal growth, get comfortable with discomfort. (laughs) (laughs) 
um, Amy touched on it a little bit already, but there's always this song that we sing like at every institute. And it talks about um, you are hard, you are hands, you know, how you're the voice of kindness. And I'm not going to be able to hear that song without thinking about oh, you and that. all that you've been able to do for our children and for the adults who now know that it's okay to practice conscious discipline, but it's also okay to say, I need help when you get to the end of your toolkit. So thank you for being that gift to the world, the gift to to us today on this podcast. And I think that all of us are going to be a little bit better off just because we had an opportunity to hear your story. So thank you so much for sharing with us today, thank Rachel. You. It was so great to see Rachel again, and I it, it just I'm drawn back to that uh, time that she mentioned about how she was in Oklahoma mm -hmm. uh, working uh, after you know in the midst of going through so much of that, and how you know we soldier on sometimes in a way that maybe doesn't always serve us well. And so how cool to hear her uh, story of when you kind of hit the skids at mm -hmm. some point, it pulls out the tools that you had, you just couldn't quite grab a hold of them. I mean, I was just so fascinated by how we, we try to stay away from the very thing that's going to help us pull through. Did you kind of pick that up or you know, did you hear? Really what I picked up was the part about when she ran out of tools, yeah. she had to ask for help. Because so often we think, well, conscious discipline helps you regulate yourself and you think, well, I should be able to do this. Yes, right. But it was a beautiful example of how it helps you, but it's always okay to say, I don't have this. Somebody needs to help me, you know, yeah. move further along with what I'm dealing with. So I just hope that you would be able to see I don't have this all together mm -hmm. and it's okay for me to get this extra help that I need. It doesn't mean that I'm not doing conscious discipline right. well. It doesn't mean that I'm not growing and transforming. It simply means exactly what she said. I needed help. Yeah. And, you know, I think when we talk about this being that adult first transformation, if we're not willing to do that, how do kids know that that's a good plan. Like, I love what she said about how I was just taught. You just don't have big feelings. And then when I did have them, it was the kids yeah. that were willing to see her in distress. Mm -hmm. But the adults in her life were in that mindset of, oh, I don't yeah. think we're supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're going to shift this thing, how beautiful it was that she recognized that the shift had to happen for her personally. What if she had just gone in and put that happy face on every day they would they grow up thinking that's what I have to do when I'm hurting yeah I so mm -hmm. agree with you just because you have the tool doesn't mean you don't need the help that's right <laughs> that's right every episode we like to take the time to answer a question about conscious discipline and this one comes from Karen from Dayton Ohio she wrote in asking us if you are a parent what do you need to do or how should you begin your conscious discipline journey with your children. So Amy, what advice would oh, you give to Kara? Oh, that is a big, big question, isn't it? Where to begin, where to begin? So part of it is uh, what age you're talking about and what motivates you to want to kind of pick up some new tools. So obviously the easy to love, difficult dis to discipline book is written for parents and has a lot of examples and ideas about just how you rethink 
the whole approach, uh, how you get a new framework going. Um, so that is helpful. Uh, I would also say that uh, there are uh, the podcasts and things like that on, on the website are helpful to just kind of pick around and see what floats your boat there. And if you, by any chance, have a child who's motivating you to pick up new tools because they have big, big, giant feelings, which often is the case, uh, the book Managing Emotional Mayhem by Dr. Becky Bailey is really a great, um, a, 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 it opens up our understanding of why emotions are so, not only so powerful, but so necessary in the development of self-regulation. And I think sometimes uh, when it, it, you know, I know as, as a parent, you know, it's kind of like, as soon as the feelings show up, you're like, oh no, what just happened? And it's really such a great thing when your emotions show up, because what it's saying is, this matters to me. So help me understand mm -hmm. what to do when something matters so much. When we're angry, it means something matters. When you're scared, it means you really want somebody to comfort you uh, or keep you safe. And all of those things are, uh, it, it's the same as introducing kids to what's that sound and what's that taste. This is just their internal self uh, awakening. So um, depending on uh, what it is that you're really looking for, the overview, easy to love, difficult to discipline is a great start. The emotional piece, I would say, just dive right into that uh, Managing Emotional Mayhem book. Uh, no matter what the age is, quite frankly, it helps us understand our emotions. And then mm -hmm. one last little thing that I would say to every parent who just wants to really take a look at how to bring um, tools that are perhaps more effective to uh, what our children are asking in terms of their own growth and development in today's world. Just be curious about the messages that go through your own head and relax into the idea that it's okay to not know and to be curious about, so what's this, what's going on here? Uh, because it's often our curiosity that sparks our genius instead of our fear, obviously. So um, so be curious, like, what's my child trying to help me learn about us? And man, those kids, there's just nobody that takes us deeper to our own honesty than little ones poking into our business. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that would be my, my starting point. What do you think, Latoria? I think those are some great tools um, because parents kind of get overwhelmed sometimes. So it's nice to have a little bit of direction at the beginning when it's something new. And um, even if they say they took one of the books, like uh, Managing Emotional Mayhem, if they took that, that's something that you can start with the other, you know, parents that are in your your group, you know, the folks that you see at carpool that you've gotten a, started to build a relationship with. You can actually say, you know, hey, why don't we get together, compare notes and see if this stuff actually works. So um, I would definitely encourage somebody to, you know, try it. Just read a little bit, pick, you know, one thing that you might want to try so you don't get too overwhelmed and right. see um, what kind of difference it makes for you. And it's time for our celebrations. We are definitely celebrating our summer events. The summer events have come and gone, and we just wrapped up session B of the Summer Institutes in Orlando, 
Puyallup, Washington, Liberty, Missouri, and El Central, California. We also want to celebrate and wish well the folks in Mexico City, Mexico, who just finished our biggest Spanish training ever. We had 16 different countries represented, and they all came together to learn in this amazing summer institute. Hmm. This is what makes me wish I had studied more when I had my four years of Spanish. (laughs) That would have been so fun to be a part of that. Right. Uh, Well, but there is something coming up that if you happen to have missed the summer, we do have another big event coming up in October, October 13th through the 15th. We are doing our Elevate Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which which is really a fun place to be. And it's so cool, actually, that we decided uh, to do it in October this year because so often everything happens in the summer and you feel like, oh, you get pumped up and you get pumped up and then school starts. And sometimes that's when the, you know, just that dump hits of, oh my gosh, this is harder than I thought. I didn't know this is what was going to happen. And, you know, it's that October time when it's so great to just get that extra little pump up. And so it's just the three days, but it is going to be packed full of resources for teachers of all age groups uh, to come together and really feel that current of support and uh, skill building, as well as just that uh, realization that you are in this with a team of uh, educators from around this world that truly do want to make a difference in our children's lives. So I am really excited about being there and I get to be there with you, Latoria. So even more fun, we're going to be doing uh, one of the presentations together and just excited to share and be a part of uh, everybody, uh, everybody's brilliance. Uh, so many practitioners uh, will be there who actually work in uh, different classrooms and school settings. And man, uh, you know, just kind of whatever you do in education, or even just as a parent who wants to make a difference in your community and in your family. So we are definitely hoping to see you all there so that we'll get to see you in person. But until then, please know that we are wishing all of you well as you are beginning your restart for a brand new school year. We know that you have a lot to do and you got a lot going on, but we're so glad that you spent a little time with us here today. So please know that from our heart to yours, we wish you well. For more episodes of Real Talk with Real Teachers featuring Latoria Marcellus and Amy Spidell, visit ConsciousDiscipline.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.